I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to the New Testament. We're going to look at the book of Galatians. You know, I always jokingly say this is the kind of the Sunday between the two holidays, and most of us probably ate too much turkey or, you know, had too many people over or stayed up too late or ate too many sweets or, you know, and everyone's kind of dragged in and tired out. But, you know, I honestly believe that God wants to do something very special today, and I, I believe what I'm going to share today is going to help us understand where we're going, not only next Sunday, but in 2015, and we're going to launch a major campaign through our church. And I think we need to realize that, you know, advertising into our community is great. It brings an awareness that we care about people. But, you know, this is not going to work apart from us engaging together. And I'm going to try to lay the foundation today. N.T. Wright in his book, After You Believe, he kind of tells, you know, one of those amazing stories. And how many recognize that so often in life, truth is more powerful than fiction? And sometimes it seems stranger than fiction. And he tells, you know, N.T. Wright is British. He lives in England. And he says, you know, it rains a lot in England. Do tell. And he said, uh, as a matter of fact, one September in 2008, it rained exceptionally. And as a matter of fact, one day they got enough rain for what they would normally get for the entire month. And so you got a sense that there was a deluge happening, just a lot of rain. And on that final day, one family decided to go for a walk in spite of the weather. And as they were crossing a park in their town, the family dog went to splash in a large puddle, and the three-year-old daughter followed the dog. That's kind of normal, right? Suddenly, without warning, the little girl simply disappeared. The father, running up, saw the dog disappear, and he realized in a flash what was happening. A storm drain had burst its cover, Beneath the puddle and the girl and the dog were now sucked down into the drain. Thinking quickly, the father, his name was Mark Baxter, realized that the storm drain would literally spill out into the river about 100 yards away. So immediately, he set off running. When he got to the river, sure enough, there he spotted his little girl's coat floating downstream with Laura, his daughter, face down inside of it. Immediately, Mark plunged in and rescued her, bruised, battered, but still alive. A miracle. In a sense, yes, all sorts of things might have happened. The little girl could have been sucked somewhere underground. She might have, by the time her father reached her, have inhaled enough water to kill her. But what impressed me most, N.T. shares, is what the father said afterward about his frantic run to the riverbank. He said, every time I thought a bad thought, I forced myself to think of something else. And that was the secret. You see, Mark Baxter wasn't working out step by step as he was running what he had to do. He had already grasped that in a flash. But what he needed was the self-discipline to control his thoughts of panic that were going to become racing through his mind. You see, Mark actually works for the British Royal Air Force and had learned self-discipline where obviously now it mattered. The ability to size up a situation, figure out what to do, and do it though by instinct is one thing. The ability, however, to hold at arm's length the thoughts that would terrify and paralyze you as you go about it is another thing. The kind of backup mental discipline necessary 
for virtue to take full effect. Now, in this book by N.T. Wright, he's talking after you believe. He's basically saying the thing that matters in the Christian life is not so much the fact that we do believe, though that is critical, but what happens after we believe, which is the development of virtue, or another word for it is character. That there is a discipline that's required to develop in this life. As he, basically there's a little uh, sideline to the story. Little three-year-old Laura was actually taking swimming lessons and she had learned to do the star float, spreading herself up and allowing the water to support her. And when she regained her consciousness after being rescued, she explained to her father that she had been trying to do the star float but had been unable to because the tunnel that she'd been swept through was too narrow. Even at that age, she had learned enough to know that if you find yourself suddenly in unexpected danger, that there are things to do to make yourself safe. And she had also learned not to panic when strange things suddenly happen to you. Fortunately, life is not mostly about dealing with those kinds of emergencies. How many go, thank God for that? But learning how to cope with living life well, well, that's a different story. As a matter of fact, when you study the Bible, and I really like parts of the Old Testament, especially the wisdom literature, wisdom in the Old Testament really is about learning skills, learning how to skillfully live life. How many recognize that a lot of people don't live a very wise life? A lot of people don't seem to live life with much skill. As a matter of fact, they seem to be going from pillar to post. It seems that they're battered around. It seems like all these things that are happening are defining them rather than them rising above all of the challenges that are being brought forth in life. So as N.T. Wright points out, learning to navigate this world wisely and to grow towards complete to become a complete and mature human being in and through it all is the challenge we all face. It doesn't matter if we're a Christian or not. We all face this. Are we going to grow up? Are we going to face life well? Are we going to live it with wisdom? And so one of the challenges as we mature is learning to move past ourselves. I would suggest to you probably the first step. If you want to know how mature you are, you know, Ask yourself the question, is my life about myself? If that's where you are, you still haven't grown up yet. You're immature. You see, the Bible says this in the book of Philippians. It says, don't just consider your own interests, but also the interests of others. Mature people are able to move past themselves and to become concerned about other people. That's when you know you're maturing. You're, you're living beyond yourself. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to suggest a thought that when you learn to do that, it becomes more liberating and freeing. I believe one of the greatest bondages that we have to overcome is self-centeredness. It's a huge problem. And we're so locked into our own little world. It's about us. It's about our happiness. And, you know, the sad part is when you make personal happiness your goal, you never arrive there. You never achieve it. I was reading the other day, and I'm reading this theology book, and it says, really, when you begin to pursue the glory of God, that's when you finally discover true happiness. But most people never get there, and so most people are not that happy. They haven't really come to that great dawning realization, it's not about us. 
It's about God and it's about partnering and participating with God. It's about embracing those around us to help them in their journey of life. And as believers, this is amazing to me that we are allowed to participate with God in helping people become disciples of Christ. That you and I are allowed to participate in this. Isn't that an amazing thing that God says, I'm gonna share with you the greatest joy and that is helping other people. And you can participate in it. God chooses to live and speak through us. How many go, that's kind of limiting. You ever thought about that? How limiting it is for God to actually decide to work through us? You know, he, he did that early. I mean, he, he came, he left heaven. He was everywhere present at one time, knew everything, and yet he limited himself to a human body. But now, as he's resurrected from the dead, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, right? Resurrects back. To, what's he doing? He sends his spirit to live inside a human being, so he limits himself in the, in the sense that you and I have to participate with him in order to help the culture in which we're living in. But what happens so often is we get so distracted with our own hang-ups and challenges and personal things and own goals that we lose sight of God's overarching purpose that will actually help you and I grow up to become the person God designed for us to become. So how do you reach out to others who are drowning and they don't realize it? Because I think a lot of people are drowning and they're not even aware that they're struggling. What do we do when people don't believe the message of the gospel? What's the obvious response to that? What, what can we do? That's it. Pray. Pray. And keep praying. Continuous praying. That's the first, and it should be the obvious response. But let me give you a second response. I think we need to ask God, which is part of prayer, for something specific. We need to ask God for wisdom. We need to say, Lord, I need wisdom to know what to do in this situation. And for the vast majority of believers, you know, we don't persevere. And ultimately, what happens is we become silent. I would suggest that the church in North America today is quite silent. We have very little to say. We feel like we're, we're kind of almost traumatized, you know. We're almost paralyzed because the culture seems so strong to us. And we, we sometimes say to ourselves, I don't know what to say, Pastor. I, I, I don't know how to help people. I get this all the time. I don't know what to do, what to say, what to do to help. You know, I, don't, I, I feel like, you know, people dismiss me. I, I, I look at our culture today. They don't believe in anything. They don't believe in truth. They don't believe in the Bible. I mean, how do you approach people like that? Well, I'm going to tell you how to do it today. Because the Apostle Paul and all the other disciples, they had to do it too. They had a very hostile culture. If you read the book of Acts, you'll find out people weren't always receptive to what they were saying. So, when you talk to believers about sharing their faith, most people go, I'm shutting off right now. I don't need another guilt trip. Thank you very much. I already know I'm responsible, but I don't know how to go about doing it. Well, I'm going to try to help you today. I think we're living in a time when we need to start by doing the powerful work of what I'm going to call pre-evangelism. It's actually evangelism. I'm going to call it pre-evangelism, okay? This is step one. Everybody write it down. Step one, pre-evangelism. What is that, pastor? That's where we allow the life of God to capture our affections. Now, let me ask you a question today. Here's your first question. Has God captured me? Has God captured my affections? 
Is God the one I am passionate about and I'm passionately pursuing him and I'm trying to get to know him better? That's a very good question. Because if that's not happening, you will never impact people. I can guarantee you right now, that's why you're not impacting people, if that's not happening. You have to have a heart for God. And when you have a heart for God, it translates into a heart for people. It always expresses itself that way. You know, and then we have to have a passionate concern about the things God's concerned about. I believe if you have a heart for God, you're going to have a heart for the things God's got a heart for. And that's people. And that's especially people that are lost. And I'm going to suggest this thought to us today that so often what we do is we tend to be very critical of people who are having problems. People who are sinning. People who are doing stupid things. We look at these people in the culture and they don't know Christ and they're doing all kinds of crazy stuff and we judge them. And that's so wrong. And you go, why, Pastor? Because, you know what? They don't know what they're doing. Sin is a form of insanity. And you have to understand that people are just doing by nature what their sinful nature is driving them to do. They don't even know why they're doing what they're doing. If you ask them, why did you do that? They go, I don't know. Just wanted to. I just felt that would make me happy. I just felt that was the right thing to do. That, they're pursuing something that's leading them to self-destruct and hurt people around them. You know, they don't have a power to deliver them from the addictions and all the other issues in their life. That doesn't mean they're, they're inexcusable or they, you know, they, you know, one day they'll all give an account. Everyone's going to give an account to God. God's, God is giving us an opportunity to respond to him. God is always reaching out to people. But what I'm saying to you is people without Christ are going to make all kinds of crazy, foolish, sinful decisions and it's going to be very detrimental. Now, I think the greatest testimony of the reality of the gospel is our own life. But it has to be a changed, and I added this, Christ-like life. You know, you and I don't have any, we're not going to actually impact people if we are, you know, living like everybody else. You know, if we're, we're, if we're allowing our life to be so compromised that culturally we look exactly like everybody else and how, how we live our lives and our lifestyle is conforming to what everybody else is doing, don't expect people to say what makes you different. It's not going to happen. You know, the people that are going to impact people are marching by a different drumbeat. They're the people who have a biblical worldview. Christ is Lord in their lives. They're trying to obey the word of God. And there's a different value system. And, we're, you know, and the value system is expressed through the scriptures. And you and I are embracing that value system. When you live like that, you will appear different. You know, why aren't you getting drunk with us? Why aren't you running around? Why aren't you, you know, uh, having sex with everybody? I mean, that's our, where our culture's at. They think you're abnormal if you're not moving in, shacking up, you know, the old term phrase. But you see, today we're, you know, this is what's so shocking to me as a pastor, that a lot of young people today, even in the church, just move in. And Christian parents think it's okay. I'm going, excuse me? That just shows me how ignorant we are of the ways of God. We have so, you know, compromised our understanding. We're like the Israelites who, when you read in the Old Testament, they're just doing the same thing as the nations around them, and God finally gets upset with them. Folks, we have a higher calling, a different standard. We are the people of God. We are the people that carry the presence of the living God. We live a different life. 
And out of that, we are light in a world of darkness. We should be like the stars that are setting the course for people to find their way to God. But if we're so compromised and so sin-ridden and so damaged in our own lives, how are we going to impact people around us? It's not going to happen. I can tell you that right now. This is called pre-evangelism. See, Joseph Allridge wrote a book years ago called Lifestyle Evangelism. You know what he said in that book? It was so great. Here's his premise. He said, think of your life like a song. You have the music, the melody, and the lyrics. Your life is like the music. The gospel preaching is like the lyrics. No one's going to listen to the lyrics if they don't like the music. And if your life isn't right, they're not going to listen to what you got to say. And if your life is out of whack with what you're saying, that's even worse. That's, that's why people say, well, there's, you guys are hypocrites. Because you are sending a discordant message. Your message isn't lining up to your life. So we have to get this straight in our minds. This is what's going to impact the people around us. Especially in our day when the Bible or the scriptures are not deemed as authoritative in the minds of our society. One of the best places to begin is with our own experience with the gospel and how it has impacted our own lives. People can argue with you all they want to about doctrine, theology, but you know what they can't argue with? Your experience. They cannot argue with that. I can share people my story. And so I want to take a look at how the Apostle Paul has, is living in a culture similar to ours. How is he going to deal with people that are hostile to the gospel? And I want to leave you today with three effective ways of sharing the gospel. And the first one is simply uh, to explain what our lives were before Christ. I call it the B.C. part of our lives. You know how the, the history is divided, B.C. and A.D.? B.C. actually stands for before Christ. A.D. stands for in the year of our Lord. Okay, let's talk about our B.C. Our B.C. part is before we knew Jesus Christ. Now, I know some of you are saying to my, myself, well, you know, Pastor, I grew up in the church. I don't see a lot of transformation. Let's stop right there. That's a, that's a problem. I'm going to tell you why. If you and I are not growing, something's wrong with us. See, we are called to become like Jesus Christ. Change has to become a part of our lives. We should become more patient. We should become more persevering. We should become more forgiving. We should become more understanding. We should become more helpful. We should be able to stand up with more courage and speak the truth in the situations and not let people run us over. And if that's not happening, there's something wrong with our experience with God. It is the truth. As a matter of fact, I, I even suggested this even in the first service. I said, you know, sometimes as Christians, we're not even Christians. You know what we are? We're going to find out from Paul, we're just religious. You say, how do you know when you're religious and not a Christian? When you're religious, you're angry, you're judgmental, you're critical, and you have no compassion. That's when you know you're a Pharisee. And I think a lot of people sitting in the church, you haven't even accepted Christ. You don't, you don't even have a Christ experience. You're still at before Christ. You, you are a religious person. And we're going to find out that the Apostle Paul was certainly that. 
you know, listen to what it says about Paul's life here in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 13. I'm going to go back to chapter 1 in a moment, but chapter 2 and verse 13, he says, you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Let me just stop here and say this about Paul. Paul was a religious person. Paul was a highly devoted person. Paul was a very sincere person. You know, you can be sincerely wrong. You can be sincerely wrong about God. I think the greatest challenge that has hit me in the last few years, and especially as I preached through the book of Job, I got down to chapter 42, and you know what it said? That, you know, these men that said they were followers of God, Eliphaz, uh, Zophar, and Bildad, these were friends of Job. You know what God said to them in chapter 42, verse 7? God says, I'm angry with you guys because what you said about me is not right. You and I can misrepresent God. That ticks God off. How many here like to be misrepresented? You guys really appreciate having somebody misrepresent you. Somebody say things about you that's not true about you. How many really appreciate that? No, I don't think so. I don't think we like that. Well, you know what? God doesn't like that. But sometimes, you know, in our ignorance, and it comes out of ignorance, we misrepresent God. I think we've got to be a little more careful of what we're saying about God because sometimes our understanding of God is underdeveloped just like these people's theology was fully underdeveloped and they actually totally misrepresented God. How'd they do that, Pastor? Well, they had a very simplistic view of life. They said, if you do what's right, God's going to bless you. If you do what's wrong, God's going to punish you. Now, by the way, is that true? Yeah, it is true to a certain degree, but that's not the whole story. You see, they had a very simplistic view of life. And sometimes as Christians, we try to simplify things to the point where we make it simplistic. You know what? God is going to deal with people this way, but not always in this life. And that actually God, even though he is just, God doesn't always exercise judgment and justice in every situation while we're on earth. Because if God exercised this justice in all of our lives, we wouldn't make it. We wouldn't cut it. We'd all fall short. So what does God do? He shows us love and grace. And love and grace sometimes doesn't look like justice. Interesting. Let me just keep moving on here. Secondly, not only was, it says here, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. By the way, zeal without knowledge is fanaticism. We got, you know, Paul was a fanatic. And fanaticism is dangerous. You know, Excuse me, we need to have zeal with knowledge, not without knowledge. Look at the three characteristics of Paul's life before Christ. He persecuted the church. That's, how many know that's unlike God? He was angry, he was arresting people, he was imprisoning people, he was killing people. Does that sound like what Jesus would be doing? Don't think so. Number two, it says he advanced in Judaism above his peers. You know, so he was he was you know, very committed to what he was doing. And finally, he was zealous for the tradition of the fathers. And so Paul was using this as an argument to the Galatians who were reverting back under the law. He said, hey, I've already been there. I've already excelled at all of that. And all it produced was hatred and anger. And it didn't bring life. It brought death. Nobody can keep the law. We're incapable of doing it. Not that we don't try to obey God, but we are incapable of it apart from Jesus Christ. And Paul was teaching him that. Now, it's interesting. Paul was saying, do you know what this is going to lead you to if you're going to embrace this course of action? You're going to find yourself fighting God. The apostle Paul was fighting God. 
Isn't that true? Isn't that what Jesus said when he appeared to him on the road to Damascus? He said, it's pretty hard to kick against the pricks. You know, in other words, you're resisting me. You're fighting me. We don't always look at our lives before Christ that way, that we're actually fighting God. I'm going to just say this, that every person that's not surrendered to Jesus Christ is fighting God. You go, Pastor, how can you be so narrow-minded? Let me point it out to you this way. Move past humanity for a moment. Put God at the center of your thinking. God is the supreme being. God is the creator of heaven and earth. He's made everything. He's made all of us. We're all accountable to him, okay? Does everybody follow that? Everybody tracking with me? Okay, well, I believe in evolution, Pastor. I don't care how you believe God created the world. I still believe God's the creator, okay? However you think it happened. I don't think anybody knows, to be really honest. How's that? We weren't there. Nobody's there. Okay, God's the creator. Everybody buy that? Okay, let's follow the train of thought here. God is at the supreme, God has a purpose in mind. We are the created. We are the creation. We are accountable to God. He has a purpose in it. And if, you know, God says, I'm going to rescue us. And he comes down. God himself comes down, becomes a man, and dies for us. And you and I say, well, there's, a better, there's another way to be a good person. God goes, no, there's not. This is it. I've done it. You know, it's like saying, when we don't receive Jesus Christ, we're like saying, Jesus, you died in vain. Paul says that in Galatians 3.21. He says, that's what you're basically saying, that God did all of this in vain. Well, for you, it is in vain. But for us who believe, it's not in vain. God did this for us. That's an amazing thing. And we're accountable to him. Do we understand that, you know, so when we don't do things God's way, we're fighting God. And the prophet Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. So listen, this is a condition of the human race. We've all tried it our way, and I'll tell you what, it doesn't work. If you want to keep fighting God, good luck. Keep fighting, you'll end up losing. I guarantee it. You'll be the loser in the long run. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew's gospel. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Folks, there is no neutrality. That's another myth. We're either for God or we're opposed to God. We're either doing God's will or we're doing our will. One or the other. So maybe your BC story is filled with pain and bitterness. Maybe you've, you know, you know what brokenness looks like. Well, maybe you grew up in the church and said, I don't experience any of that. Take a look around you. Your neighbors, your coworkers, they all have terrible stories going on in their lives. Why? Because they're without Christ. And you and I can say, well, you know, I can't believe they're doing that stuff. Listen, if you didn't have Christ in your life in God's grace, you'd be doing the same thing. But for the grace of God, I would be doing the same stuff. It's Christ that's keeping us from doing these terrible things. It's not your goodness. You and I don't have any inherent goodness. We need to understand that. Now notice... Paul says here in Proverbs, you know, Proverbs, not Paul, but the Proverbs says this, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. So you can be serious about something, you can be sincere about something, you can be zealous about it, but anything apart from Jesus Christ is unable to save from sin. And that's our biggest problem. Okay, let me move on. The second aspect is uh, in effectively sharing the gospel is to point to the call of God. Okay, we had a life before Christ. Some of us, it was a broken life. For others of us, thankfully, we grew up in a Christian home. We, 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 we saw the broken life in other people. We don't have to experience it. 
We just see it around us all the time. Thank God we've been spared from it. Rejoice in that. You have a testimony too. These people that think, well, I don't have a testimony. Listen, being kept by God is a testimony. Growing in grace is a testimony. Becoming Christ-like is a testimony. And we'll get there, how powerful that really is. It says, this is the time and place where we responded to God. God took an initiative. He's been coming to us. He's been calling to us. Why do some people believe and others don't? How did God's call come to you? Each of us, if we've come to Christ, has a story of how God revealed himself to us. And there's two sides to the call of God. There's the divine side and the human side. There's God who, you know, he's electing or he's choosing or he's calling. And then there's the human side that we're responding and we're obeying. You know, the call originates from God. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to stop here and say this. There's no question Paul's conversion was a bit unique. Don't expect a Damascus Road experience where, you know, the risen Christ appears to you and kind of, you know, you go blind for three days. You know, that's probably not going to happen that way. That's very dramatic and probably had to be because this guy was so bullheaded, right? I mean, he was killing Christians, so God had to step in and do something very dramatic for him. But my point is simply this, that he had a revelation. And that word means an unveiling. Somehow, some way, God reveals to your innermost being and you have this aha moment, you get it. You know, I go, wow, God died for me. This is so amazing. You know, and I can be forgiven and I can experience everlasting eternal life. This is amazing. And it's not just, you know, when I die, this is a quality of life God's giving to us. God wants to give us a quality of life that's different than the life we had before Christ. How many Christians have actually figured this out? It's not, I give my life to Jesus and I continue in my sin. That's not what it's about, folks. When you really experience Christ, you get a different life. It's a different life. It's a different quality of life. As a matter of fact, I know when you're saved is when you no longer desire the things of this world and sin. As a matter of fact, they become repulsive to you, which is an amazing thing. The thing I used to love, I now hate. And the thing I used to be repulsed by, I now love. I desire the things of God. That's a change of heart. That's what conversion is. It's a change of innermost the essence of who we are. We're changed. We're, we're moving in a brand new direction. There's a new desire, a new heart. And if you haven't had that, you're not a Christian. Wow. That's pretty dramatic, isn't it? And some of us need to have that wake-up call. I had somebody this morning say, I think I've known Christ for 30 years, but I've never known him personally. Yeah, wake-up call. Got to have an inward change. It's not an outward conforming, it's an inward transformation. We're changing our nature. The scriptures teach us that people are blind to the truth. Listen to what Paul writes, he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In other words, the word veil means hidden. It's not that they don't hear the gospel, they don't get it. They don't understand the good news of it. They think, oh, you know, I don't want to, I want to keep doing my own thing. Well, you see, you have to come to the place where you're fed up with yourself. You have to come to the place where you recognize that you're, you know what, you can't do it anymore. You have to give up on yourself. 
See, you come to the end of yourself. You're starting to mourn, not just because you get caught and the, and the penalty and the consequences of sin. You're fed up of being a sinner. And you want something different. You want a new way to live. You want a new start. You want a new beginning. You're saying, I can't do it anymore. God, I need you. Something happens on the inside. It says, now it goes on to say, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They're blinded to this. They're blind men. You know when people walk around saying, I don't see it, I go, no, you're just telling me you're blind, that's all. You know, I don't believe it because I don't see it. I'm going, that's because you're blind. You need to have an unveiling. You need to have a revelation of the Spirit of God speaking into yourself. That aha, I get it now. Yes, I see it. See, listen to what he says a little earlier in the chapter, verse three, grace and peace to you. Grace, God's favor, his gift to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. Folks, we're living in a present evil age. You know, a lot of people in our culture go, I love this age. I don't. I'm looking forward to the, 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 the age of God. You know, there's a new age coming. I see the new agers. They take a good word and destroy it. You know, we, God's, we have a new age. We're living in the new age. Do you know that? If you're a child of God, you're not under the old age. You're in a new age. You're living in a new kingdom. You're experiencing a new life. You have a new allegiance. You have a new king. It's not yourself anymore. It's Christ. It's a totally different life. Something God initiates. Listen, this happens before our birth. Do you know there's not one person that's an accident on this planet? This is amazing to me. Some of us, you know, we're putting ourselves down. That's because we've listened to so many tapes in our head to say that we're useless, worthless. Where do you think all that comes from? I believe that's the God of this age producing those messages to put us down. Listen to what it says here. Verse 15, but when God who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace. Now, Paul was set apart from birth to become the missionary. But for a while, he didn't know Christ. So he wasn't fulfilling what God designed for him from the very beginning. But the moment he came to Christ, his whole life direction changed. It says, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I didn't consult any man. The most profound thing we need to understand is the nature of the call of God. Called of God. It's not something that's originating from us. It's originating from God. Paul takes, you know, Jeremiah talks about this. Listen to what Jeremiah says. He's a prophet. And God, he's struggling because he's a young prophet and he's got to speak to the nation and it's not a message they want to hear. And this is what God reveals to me. He said, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before God fashioned you. You say, well, yeah, but my mom and dad got together. No, 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 that's biological. I'm telling you. You can talk about miscarriages. You can talk about people not having children. There's not one person on this planet that was an accident. They were here because God decided he wanted them here. Before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. That's pretty profound. Think about that one for a bit. And then he says, before you were born, 
I set you apart. In other words, I had a plan for you. I have a design for your life. I appointed you, Jeremiah, as a prophet to the nations. You know, you say, well, yeah, that's good about Jeremiah. What about me? Listen to what Ephesians says, chapter 2. For it is by grace you've been saved. He's speaking to the church. By God's gift you have been saved from what? Sin and death. Through faith. And this says, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What's he saying? God's saying, listen, I've been calling you. Respond to me. And when you respond to me, you will be set free from sin and death. Oh, and by the way, you know the good works that you've been trying to do to somehow be acceptable in my eyes? Those are all filthy works. But the moment you surrender to me and you come to me and you receive this gift by faith, this gift of life, this, you're, actually it's a person you're receiving. You're receiving Christ. From that point on, God says, you know what? Before you were born, I had some things for you to do. How many are getting a picture now? It's not about what I want. No, it's about what God wants. God has something in mind. You know, for us to do our own thing, it's, that's crazy. Why don't we get on our knees and say, God, what do you want? What are you asking me to do? You know, a lot of us are really frustrated because we're not doing what God's asking us to do. We're just doing our own thing. Well, yeah, we gave our life to Christ, but we're living this conflicted, frustrated life because we're not doing what God's prepared for us to do in advance. Do you know the people he brings into your life? There's a reason for it. You know, the opportunities that come your way. There's a reason for that. God is orchestrating these things. This isn't just happening. Well, I just, you know, I love it. This one guy came to our church about three weeks ago and gave his life to Christ. You know what he said to me? I grew up in a communist country. It was atheistic. But you know what happened? The last year, I noticed there were too many coincidences. I started realizing there had to be a God. And you know, by God's grace, he brought him, him and his wife to our church. And he goes, I can't even explain to you. I felt an urgency to come to this church this Sunday. And that was the very Sunday. They both had an aha moment. And for the first time, they understood the gospel. Even though somebody had been sharing with them, they had an aha moment. And all of a sudden, boom, it all made sense. And they gave their lives to Christ. It's beautiful. It's what it's about. So what's our side? What's our side is we have to respond in obedience. It's saying yes to the Lord's call and purpose for our lives. And here's something that really impacted me. And I was meditating on this this morning. For too many Protestant Christians, we think this is a one-time decision. I gave my heart to Jesus 30 years ago. Good for you. Awesome. That's, that's great. But did you give your heart to Jesus this morning? You see, you know, after pastoring for almost 33 years, you know what I'm noticing? People drifting. People made shipwreck of their faith. I've seen it all. I go, how does that come about? How can people sit in a church and hear biblical sermons and you know, pray and do all the right things and then they, about three years later, they're no longer walking with God? How in the world does that happen? Let me explain it to you because we have a funny idea about salvation. We think, oh, you know, I gave my heart to Jesus, I'm saved. Well, that's true, it's a beginning point. But listen to what Jesus says. And I think what Jesus says should trump any, any of our books and ideas about life. Okay, let me give you what Jesus said. Then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me or anyone would follow me, what's he got to do? What's it say? He must 
He must deny himself. What does that mean? It means I don't live for my own pleasure. I don't live for my own purpose. Now, can you imagine if we just obeyed this one verse? It would change our lives. Okay, I'm no longer first in my life. Christ is first. Now, I come home and I want to do something. But what happens if other people want to do something? Well, then we have conflict because, you know, people, one wants one thing and one wants another, and then we have a conflict. Isn't this kind of, we're all on our way. As a child of God, I go, God, what do you want me to do? God, you know, it has a lot to do about, you know, not only my interests, but the interests of others. I need to factor past myself to where other people are at. What's the good thing to do right now? How can I help other people? How can I be less self-centered, less selfish? How can I be more caring and more kind, more helpful, more understanding? You start behaving like this, all of a sudden you're behaving like Christ. You're not just doing your own thing. I'm denying myself. What am I doing? I'm taking up my cross. He says, he must deny himself, what? And take up his cross 30 years ago. What does it say? Daily. God's calling me every day. God's calling you every day. Are you hearing that call? You see, you and I, you know, we can act like, well, I, I got my own life to be busy. I'm busy. I got this, I got school to go to. I've got work to run to. I've got, you know, bills to pay, Pastor. Don't you understand the way life works? Hey, I understand how life works. But I understand how the Christian life works. This is the Christian life. I got to take up my cross daily to follow Jesus. I have to hear the call every day. I have to say yes to him every day. I have to say no to sin and self every single day. I have to become a follower of Christ every single day. Otherwise, I'm drifting. Too many people are drifting. I can tell you right now, there's so many Christians in North America, and the sad part is how little we know of the Bible. That's the shocking part. How little the Bible is defining how I'm living my life. I, you know, we're letting the culture define our decisions. We don't know what the Bible says. Well, why is that important, Pastor? Because God's revealing himself through his word, and we're not listening to God. We don't even have a relationship with him. If this is all you get is once a week, this isn't enough, folks. You should be talking to God every day. You should have an open Bible every day. You know, your Bible should, you know, have a few problems with it like this one does, you know. It's starting to fall apart. I can take sections out. What does that mean, Pastor? It means, you know, when I look at a Bible like this, I go, this person's using it. You know, you should have a lot of Bibles. You should be burning through Bibles, if you burn through Bibles, your life won't get burnt out. How's that? I'm telling you, you've got to know God, and you've got to know him every day. You've got to follow him daily. Let me move on to the third aspect. Are we getting this? Is this making sense to us? Okay, let me move on to the third one. It's our life after Christ. What's transpired since Jesus came into my life? How has Jesus made a difference in my relationships with others? How has Jesus made a difference in the way I work? How has Jesus made a difference in my attitude? How has Jesus made a difference in my expectations? How has Jesus overcome my fears and anxieties and my doubts? Come on now. No, I'm still back there, Pastor. I got, I'm fretting, worrying, stewing, you know, nothing changes. I'm still in the same old place. Folks, you need to get saved. 
You need to get your life right with God. You know, I'll tell you how evangelism is going to work. I've studied revival. I've written a dissertation, a doctoral dissertation on revival. You know what I discovered? When the people of God get right with Christ, the end result and fruit is many other people get saved. Why? Because a changed life is the greatest billboard and advertisement for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if people aren't getting saved, that means our lives aren't really reflecting the image of God in our world. And let me throw this in here. If you want to be happy, you're going to have to pursue the glory of God. And until you do that, you won't be happy. Good luck on all your other pursuits. It ain't going to happen. Because we were designed a certain way. Listen to what happened to Paul. He was transformed from a persecutor to a propagator, from an, ad, from an adversary to an advocate. I mean, this guy's life was totally turned around. You know what's really great is when your life changes and people see the change. And you know the only thing they can say is, Jesus came into that person's life because I knew what he was like before he became a Christian and he's a different person today. How many know that's an advertisement for the good news of Jesus Christ, that he can change people's lives? You know, a careful study of Paul's life will reveal his devotion to God, a disciplined lifestyle, and a desire for God and his will to be done. You know, folks, there's only two wills, my will and God's will. And C.S. Lewis said something very profound once. He said... All the people in heaven are the people who desire to do God's will. And all the people that are in hell, which is an absence of God, really, are the people who got their will. And you have to decide in life whose will are you going to follow, God's will or your will. Think of the Lord's Prayer for a minute. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in me as it's being done in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses or sins as we forgive those who trespass against us if you if you live that prayer every day you'll be fine because you're going to be saying it's your agenda it's your will and I'm going to let go of all the garbage that comes my way and you'll be free a lot of Christians, you know, really hung up on all kinds of nutty stuff. I'm going, let it go. When you're a changed person, this is what happens. It brings credibility to the message. Isn't that great? I want credibility. I want, you know, young people today, you know what they want? Authenticity. And you know, it doesn't matter how old you are. If you are, what you see is what you get. When they say, you know what I appreciate? You're just who you are. I'm like this all the time. Some people go, can't you not be a pastor? Sorry, I'm wired a certain way. You know, I pastor on vacation. You guys are laughing, but it's the truth. You ask my family, it's, a, it's amazing. People will tell me their problems. I'm praying for people. I don't just focus on you. You, you know, it's not just a job for me. This is inside. It doesn't stop. You know what? That's the way it should be. It's not, you know, it's not just being a pastor, it's being a Christian. You know, one day I won't be a pastor, but I'll still be a Christian. And you know what the fun part is? I'll still be doing it. You know? I'll still be doing it. Why? I'm wired this way. I want to be like this. Let me close with this. You know, George Barna, 
He shares the story. He was living near Chicago in South Barrington, which is a suburb of Chicago. It's where Willow Creek is. How many of you ever heard of that church that Bill Hybels is the pastor? One of the largest churches in the United States. Patty and I actually went to that church one day. It was kind of fun. You know, I loved it. You know why? Because they had the doors closed and there was 5,000 people standing in line to go to church. And I went, I like this church. You know, I like it when people are eager to go to church. You know, then one day... Uh, Bill Hybels was leading his, his church family on Wednesday nights through a study in the Gospel of Luke. And, you know, he, and, and, and Barna, you know, I love this guy. He's so, he's so authentic. He just said, you know, it was a terrible day. I had a full meetings, negotiations, productions. And he said, typical Chicago winter weather, terrible winds, temperature characteristically sub-zero, drove eight miles to the church on narrow roads, caked with ice. Welcome to Alberta, George. We have the same scenario, right? And, I, you know, and then he says, and I wasn't even up for this meeting, but I went to church anyways. You know, listen, if you only go to church when you feel like it, you'll not go to church most of the time. Usually the times when you don't feel like it, God wants to talk to you and Satan doesn't want you to be there. Bill was reading Luke 16, 19 to 31, and he said, all of a sudden, my comatose mind snapped to attention. His passionate retelling of the story of the rich man banished to hell gripped my heart as few stories had. Chills were running down my spine as I heard the plaintive cry of the rich man to Abraham. I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not come to this place of torment. To this day, more than a decade later, I recall the lesson and the horror that filled me as I realized perhaps for the first time how horrific a life in hell would be and how significant the death of Christ had been for me and just how imperative it is to use every resource available to share the truth about life, death, sin, grace with every person I know. I remember that night, tossing and turning in bed that night, angry with Pastor Hybels, who had so effectively confronted me with the necessity of sharing the gospel with the people I love. I remember thinking about my family members who had steadfastly hidden behind denominational alliances, church attendance, and good works, heatedly using these arguments and discounting that born-again stuff. I remember the emotional pain of realizing that I might be the last hope my family and closest friends have for knowing Jesus in a personal and intimate way. No, in a saving way. And as I tried unsuccessfully to rest at night while the wind howled and the moonlight drove shadows across our bedroom, I knew that the rich man who was living in torment forevermore was no different than my family and friends unless somebody chose to confront those dear people with God's way and God's truth. I didn't sleep that night because I knew somebody was, the somebody was meant to be me. And, I, and it was a role I didn't want to have. And I didn't want to bear that burden. But the infamous wrestling match between Jacob and God became more real to me that night as I struggled through the mental gymnastics of accepting my responsibilities. Perhaps the turning point came when God revealed to me the irony of the situation. If I could remove my ego long enough to get a picture of what it was really happening, the only people who would be really affected by my decision to share or not to share were the non-believers who would miss out on heaven unnecessarily if I remained so stubborn. God used that insight to free me from my insecurities and anxieties about my overt and undeniable inadequacies as a person who was willing to share. It really doesn't matter if my efforts disappointed me. Better to have my ego deflated than to realize that I chose not to enable good people to share eternity with me in God's presence. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? You know, I think the closer we get to Christ, 
The more passionate we become about him, the more passionate we'll become about people. That's the truth. And the more we'll realize that this life is so brief, eternity is so long, God has designed us with a purpose on earth. And for most of us, we're doodling. Does anybody know what a doodle is? Doodling is when you're sitting in classroom, scribbling on a scribbler, making unrecognizable and undeterminate marks because you're in another world in the la-la land of daydreaming. And I hate to say it, but the church right now, for the most part, doodles. It's doodling. It's goofing. Are we really passionate about the gospel? Read the book of Acts again. Tell me, those men and women who sacrificed their lives. You know why they sacrificed their lives? Because Christ sacrificed his. What have you sacrificed for Christ? What have you really sacrificed for Christ? Let's stand this morning. Are you getting a sense that it's not just about floating some advertisement through the community and we think, oh, we're going to bring hope to our city? How many are getting it? I got to live a different life. I got to live a different life. I got to live a Christ-like life. I got to choose every day to do his will. Is that you today? That you're making that choice every day, Lord. I delight to do your will. Can you say that like Jesus? I delight to do your will. That's what I want above everything else. That should be the cry of every heart of every child of God. I delight to do your will, Lord. Even if it's difficult. You know, there's some people, they say, give me the hard job. I love Caleb. You know, give me the tough job, God. The rest of these guys, you know, they don't have any experience. You know, give me the tough job. I'll take those giants on, God. You know, where are the real heroes anymore? Where are the courageous people? Where are the ones that are saying, I'm willing to spend my life for Christ? You know, I want to I just really go for it, Pastor. I want to really make a difference. I want to live this life and expend it in such a way that at the end of my life, I can say, you know what? I really ran this race, and I ran it well. I ran to finish it, and I ran to finish it well. I'm serious about this, you know. We have to discipline ourselves. We have to be devoted. We have to be passionate. We've got to make up our mind. This is serious stuff. With every head bowed this morning, how many here say, you know, Pastor, you know what? I want to, I want to count for something. I want, to, I, want to, I want to actually live out God's design for my life. I want to be one of those people that says, Lord, I'm going to live for you daily. I want to, I want to put my, my will aside. I want to do your will. I want to do it. I want to go for it. I want to have an impact and an influence. I want to experience all that God has for me. I don't want to limit God in any way in my life because I want to be used of God to reach people around me. If that's your cry, God's going to hear that cry. He's going to use you. He's going to use you folks. I'm like this for a reason. I'm passionate. I don't know if you guys figured this out yet. I'm pretty passionate about what I'm doing. Because for me, this is life and death stuff. I get excited about what God wants to do. You know, if we're going to have an impact in our community, we have to be passionate. We've got to not be goofing off. How many here say, you know, Pastor, I really don't feel like I'm carrying the freight. I'm not, I'm not lifting the weight. I'm just along for the ride. You know, 
How many people are we carrying right now? That's what I'm asking. Are you going to be some of the people that get under the load and start lifting? Makes it a lot easier when all of us are lifting, isn't it? See, don't we have the privilege of coming every Sunday and being recommitted, refocused, re-energized? Because, you know, it's hard out there. I already know it's hard out there. I've worked out there. You know, snarly remarks, you know, put-downs, mocked, and, you know... Like you're, you're at, you're, 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 you know, I ran into this guy. You, you think Christians are stupid because we believe in God. That's where our culture's at. Folks, we're the people with the message. We have wisdom. Our lives are not falling apart. Take a good, hard look at where these people are at in their lives. They're a mess. I don't care how many PhDs they have, if they're not walking with Christ, their lives are a mess. They're inconsistent, and if you talk about authenticity, most of them lack it. They're inconsistent. I'm serious. A lot of them are inconsistent. I don't want to be inconsistent. I don't want to be inauthentic. I want to be real. But I want to be real for the right thing. You can be sincere, but be sincerely wrong. Apostle Paul was sincerely wrong, but now he's he's got it. Because Think about it. The God that created the world. Christ is the creator living inside of us. That's a pretty powerful message. That's good news. Amen. It's an amazing message, folks. We have the message. We just got to live it. So, Lord, I pray today, help us to live it. Help us to be passionate. Lord, help us to be effective. Lord, help us to impact our community and our region, oh God. Help us to be authentic. Help us to live daily. This word says, come after me. Pick up your cross. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross daily. Wow. That's a daily thing, Lord. We have to choose you every day. And so how many are saying, today I choose you, Lord? Today I choose you. And you're going to get up tomorrow and say, Lord, I choose you tomorrow. I choose you on Tuesday. I choose you on Wednesday. I think it's got to be a daily choice. You start to do that, I'll make you a guarantee, you will not be the same person. You will radically change in 2015 if you daily pursue Christ. We just thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.